Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. I love music. I guess that's a common statement, common sentiment. I like sappy songs sometimes. I'll even find myself, along with my wife, singing tunes created by ABBA, believe it or not, for fun. But you know, there's kind of a a thread that runs through a lot of old sappy songs, and one of the main themes is brokenheartedness. And I've often wondered, because people have asked me as a death investigator, can people actually die of a broken heart? And I don't mean a mechanical breakdown of the heart. I mean, just die from grief, die from worry, die from a pain that has been inflicted upon them. Is that possible? We all have our own stories about this, but today we're going to talk about a case involving a perpetrator who did brutally kill a young woman, but in a confession that he made, he actually believes that the news of this brutal homicide, which he broke to his father, led to his father's death, possibly death by broken heart. On Body Bags today, we're going to be talking about the sad end of Kara Nichols. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. David, I think that we're all beset by grief. One way or another, we carry it around like baggage throughout our life. All these things that occur that we're subjected to, I think, emotionally throughout our life, we do carry it around like baggage. And everybody says, hey, you got to put that down and move on with your life. That's a lot easier said than done, though, isn't it? I think all of us deal with grief differently. Some of us look straight ahead and say death is a part of life. Grief and happiness, are they coexist. We're born to die. All those types of things from the intellectual side, but our heart where we love, we feel, we empathize and sympathize, all those things, when somebody passes that even though we know it's a reality, it's tough. I believe maybe it's something I want to believe that we have such a depth of human emotion that one could die from a broken heart. I don't know if it's true or not, probably never figured out physically, but I do know that grief can cause people to not want to experience life because of their grief. They, they can't smile. They can't laugh. If they do, they feel guilty because of their loved one not being there to share it with them. Yeah. As an extension, I think that when it comes to a child, if a child, and I can't even begin to put myself in the shoes of a parent who listens to perhaps the confession of a child who admittedly states that they killed another human being and you confess that to a parent is bearing that burden. I can't even imagine what kind of effect that might have on that parent's well-being because you've raised the child, you've got them to adulthood, and suddenly in the case, certainly of Karen Nichols, she's the homicide victim that we're discussing today. When this killer, Joel Hollendorfer, admits to his father that he has literally choked the life out of a young woman. I don't know that it's the same as driving a, a knife through his dad's heart, but I got to tell you, man, I cannot even begin to fathom the depth of grief that you would have over that as a parent. In this particular case where we're talking about a beautiful 19-year-old girl with a family that loved her, friends, 
and a man who tells his own parents that he ended her life, I could see how that would drive a stake into your father's heart because we all want the best for our children. We want to think the best, but to hear that your child has just done, by the way, regardless of age, your child is always your child. Hollendorfer, a grown man admitting to his parents that he has done the most heinous thing you can do. You can't get any worse than this. There is nothing, but there's no deeper surface to scratch than I killed, I took the life of another human being and I did it with my own bare hands. When you consider the fact that not only did he confess to his parents and to his former wife that he did this, but then on top of that, to let your dad know, perhaps, that this young woman, her remains, all that remains of her, were actually discarded on your own property, the father's own property. I think that, again, that's another blow to this, to this parent and the family in total, because they're always bearing this burden. And to know that their son is out there walking around, I would think that after being told this, the son actually is out there in the public for years afterwards. And you can only imagine in light of this information, how in the world can you sleep at night thinking that, well, is he going to kill again? And here's the, the big worry for me. When you actually kind of play this out in your mind and you know, if you've been told this, that there is a family out there, Dave, who loves someone and they're missing them. How is it that you keep this information to yourself? How is it that you don't say you need to go to the authorities, let them know what you've done or I'm going to go. I just don't know. But I do know this. The last time that Miss Nichols, Kara, was actually seen alive, her remains were not recovered for many years after the fact. And she's got a family that's grieving over her loss. Joe, I'm curious as to how much blame a person shoulders when they don't tell the police something they know. I mean, you've got missing posters of Kara Nichols. Her family is looking for her. Again, posters are up. Flyers are done. Facebook pages, I mean, the whole nine. People are looking for Kara Nichols. They don't know where she is. What we do know is on October the 9th, Kara Nichols was on her phone. She was an aspiring model. She did work as an escort. I want to say that in such a way that it doesn't diminish the life. Getting sick and tired of people judging people for what they do because nobody deserves to be killed. For no reason. In this particular case, Karen Nichols talked to her brother every day. They were very close. When I say they talk every day, I mean they talked every day. He was on the phone with her that night of October the 9th. And when he called her back on October the 10th, he didn't get her. The reason that was such a big deal is because they talked every day, Joe. And so her brother immediately, very quickly, was alarmed at this. He didn't waste any time. He went to her apartment. We talked to her roommates. Hey, where'd she go? They said she's gone to Denver on a modeling thing. And her brother looked in her room and he found her laptop, her phone charger. He found personal effects that she would have taken if that's where she went. But they were still right there next to her bed. So that's what the, they, when I say they were close, close enough that in less than 24 hours, brother is saying she's missing. I only hope my children have that relationship with their siblings. That's something that to me is very unique and different. I don't have that with mine. No, I don't either. Uh, and 
not much more than beyond that uh, with extended family members. If I went missing for certain family members, they were like, oh, yeah, I think I saw him maybe five years ago. <laughs> or maybe I talked to him at a at a at some kind of family get together or, or something like that. And here we have the brother, and he's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this family. He's grieving this. And there's a lot of, I don't know if, if survivor guilt is one of the things that comes into play here. But when you think about she is constantly checking in with him every single day, and it's not so much a check-in as it is they're just conversing, perhaps. Granted, Kara had some issues in her life. She had an issue with heroin. The thing about it is if you're trying to make a living or trying to get by in the world and you have an addiction issue, in addition to some of the people, the faceless people that you run into in the sex industry, it is absolutely a recipe for disaster. And it certainly was in Kara's case. Full disclosure here, Dave, I have to say to our listeners that this, in fact, is a cold case that has been solved. Now, I don't cover a lot of cold cases because it's I've been involved in cold case investigations. And unlike my buddy Cheryl McCollum, who has the Zone 7 podcast, cold cases are not necessarily my forte. But this case is evidence that hard work and stick to particularly in this case, let you know that they can be solved. Even after all these years, you can bring some kind of ending to the physical case. Now, that doesn't mean that grief is ever going to end, but you have answers at least at the end of the day. In this case, cellular data and the connectivity that Kara had with people in her life really came into play in this case. Joe, I, I was glad you mentioned Mac. Uh, you know, when we were at CrimeCon, I had the opportunity to be right next to her in our booth. While you were doing some incredible stuff during CrimeCon, I had a chance to meet a lot of folks, a lot of Max folks and a lot of ours. And what a blessing that she is to so many people where she's working on cold cases. Think about this here with Kara Nichols. She goes missing October 9th, 2012. The last person talked to her is her brother, Terry, or that we know of. And... On October 10th, he's already worried. Now, she was reported missing a couple of days later, but they were already looking for her. That's what I, again, I find that not just amazing, but it shows a lot about the family, where the brother had been on the phone with her the night on October the 9th at about 11.45 p.m., and then the next day doesn't ring her up, so he goes to the apartment. And he immediately is pushing this. We got a reporter missing, and that's what her dad did. Paul Nichols reported her missing on the 14th. Very quickly, Joe, you've mentioned this a couple of times. Oftentimes people say they have to wait a certain number of hours or days before reporting an adult missing. That's not always the truth, right? No, it's not. And that's not necessarily written in stone anywhere. I think that that is, it's something that is stated relative to the department. A lot of it has to do with the size of the department that you're dealing with, a really big city they very well might, and I think some bureaucracy plays into this, they very well might say, well, come back and see us in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. They're an, they always give you a line about, well, they're an adult. They can make these decisions, all these sorts of things. And granted, Kara was an adult, but she was a very young adult. 
She was in her late teens. And yeah, she's well, they, she's emancipated at that point, Tom. She can make her own decisions. But you've got a family that's involved in this and they know what's going on in Kara's life at this particular time. And I can imagine that they're worried. The brother in particular probably knew that she had some issues that she was dealing with. And so you can imagine the fervor that he might have at that point in time, we've got to find her. And time is ticking off the clock. And that makes it all the more poignant, Dave, because he knew this all the way back, all the way back, all those years ago in 2012. And here we sit, and this case has just finished being adjudicated. And that's where, as we were talking about, like from a timeline standpoint, October 9th, on the night of October 9th, that's the last communication we have with Kara, her brother Terry, 1145. Now, we do know she talked to somebody else between 1145 and 1158, but her brother Terry was the one that really pushed this forward. And as you mentioned, something that's gone on for over 10 years and just has been adjudicated. I just cannot imagine the heart and soul of this man, of her brother Terry. So he goes to the apartment, he talks to the roommates and finds out, by the way, this is October the 11th when he actually talks and basically does an interview on the roommates. And he finds out that Kara left the night of October 9th and they haven't seen her since. She has not been back to the place since then. He calls dad. That's when they start looking as a family, get the police involved. And here we go. Quickly, they're starting to put things together. Police immediately start looking at the call numbers. Who called her phone? Who was she talking to? Who was she texting with? Uh, Because, again, we know that she, uh, you mentioned heroin and escort. And uh, she did some of these things that are considered high risk. They were concerned. So when they start looking at her cell phone, they're pulling up all the numbers and they find there's one number that night that called her eight or that she was communicating with eight different times, eight different times with one phone number. So if you can imagine, this takes months to go through. I thought it happened like right away, Joe. It didn't because it took time because you go from the standpoint of the 19-year-old, the young adult, yes, a teenager, but this is not a 19-year-old just out of high school, first semester of college living at home with mom and dad. This is a 19-year-old who's a bit worldly, is living on her own, has roommates. She's living as an adult. So she has the right to do whatever she wants. So they cannot have a come apart at the police station just because a family member can't get up with their sister or their daughter. Again, she's an adult, but they did look into it. It was when they assigned a detective in, I think, February of the next year that they started really looking into this because by then she hadn't been seen in a number of months, had missed all the holidays. And now they were really getting into this and they were able to identify that person who continued to call because they called the number. They called, you know, they got a number on here eight times on her cell phone. They called it. And the person that answered it, Joel Hollendorfer. Yeah. And here's the thing. When they were able to go back and track the data on the phone, they could see the actual movements of Kara on her phone, the actual route that she had traveled that night, which is pretty amazing. And keep in mind, this is back in 2012. And so the technology was not necessarily at the level that it's at now as far as tracking data, but it was sufficient to the task uh, back then. And what are the odds that you're going to have these, and people laugh when I say this, these electronic breadcrumbs that lead you specifically back to a suspect in this particular case and not only led them back 
to the suspect, but to an actual address that he had lived at for some time. Joe, when they were looking at this, the last contact with Kara, with anybody, was at 11.59 on October the 9th, beginning with the first minute of October 10, she's off the grid. I found that fascinating because oftentimes in an investigation, might have the last time I talked to Joe, but Joe was reaching out to so-and-so and there are plenty of other people that had contact after me. That's not the case here. She talked to her brother at 11.45 and then we know there was contact with Joel Hollendoffer and uh, that was it. And so when they actually called, uh, it happened on May 8th of 2013, Detective Gugliotta received a call from a man who identified himself as Joel Hollendorfer. I don't know why I'm having trouble with that name and I apologize, but it was his number that kept popping up. That's why they had been reaching out to him. So when Joel Hollendorfer called back, they wanted to talk to him, find out. He said, yes, I had contact with her. I was trying to meet up with her that night, but we never did. And he actually used the term. I'm not familiar with terms that are used, but Hollendorfer certainly was. And he claimed that he never got up with Kara on the night of October the 9th or the morning of October the 10th or at any time since. He said he was looking for what is called a, quote, in-call, but Kara only did out-call. In-call means that the client actually goes to the location of the escort. An out-call is where the escort goes to the location of the client. So Hollendorfer used that as his, I guess he thought this is his get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, they'll believe this, and this is ending of the end of the story. It wasn't because they now knew they had the last person with contact with a 19-year-old woman who was gone and yet not enough information that they could put the screws to him. You know, I don't know how investigations truly work. I'm a broadcaster. I follow these things. I report on these things. And Joe, as a forensic person, I'm sure you're aware of different techniques used by detectives to get information. But there is a point in time where they detectives really can't push any harder because they don't have enough information or evidence to go on. And particularly when it comes to search warrants, you're going to have to have something that's so compelling. So folks understand this. With a search warrant, it's not like you create the search warrant of your own volition as an uh, investigator and you go and execute it. This thing, you write it up and it has to be perfect <laughs> when you write it up and it has to be very specific and it has to have specific data points in it. I'm looking for this and this at this location and I'll be going into these locations at this address to find this information. You have to be very specific because if not, you think that some investigator that doesn't have the public's best interest at heart could just take this real broad spectrum view of the thing and go and search anywhere that they want to and use it as essentially carte blanche to dig through your personal spaces. And you're constitutionally protected from that. So in order to have this thing pass muster, you either have to go to a judge or magistrate and they have to approve it. They'll look at the search warrant just to see if it's valid. But in order to initiate that, you have to have substantial information that's going to bring you back to a location. And that actually eventually happened because what did occur is that they got a search warrant for an address there in El Paso County, uh, Colorado, which was at 9665 Burgess Road. Just to give you guys an idea of how they came up with that address, they actually used the cell phone data from Kara's phone and identified from 11.16 p.m. 
until the phone stopped working, whether the battery was taken out, it was turned off, whatever, it stopped communicating with the tower. And these detectives actually followed the route. You know, we mentioned that she was on the phone with her brother at 1145. Well, she was in transit. She was on the road at that time. All of these calls and texts were made while she was on the road. They were able to track by using the cell tower and that data, and the detectives drove the route that she was on that night. This is an unbelievable thing to me, but that route led them to turn east, uh, the last thing, turn east on Burgess Road, and that's where the address popped up of 9665 Burgess Road. And the big reveal here is, remember, Joel Hollendorfer said he did not meet up with her that night. But what is that address leading to, Joe? Well, it's it's actually leading to a family address, Dave. It's adjacent to the property that his parents owned. I think that they had bought this property back in 1985. Here's the really curious thing. There was evidence at that location that burials had taken place in the sense that there were multiple. But it wasn't the burials of human beings. It was actually the burials of horses. We spoke about Hollendorfer's father just a few moments ago, but his mother is also going to come into play in the story, Dave. Her name was Betty, and Betty still resided on this property. Joel Hollendorfer's father had actually passed in 2014, and that plays into the story from a timeline. We talked about the grieving dad and how we know that he has information that, according to the perpetrator in this case, he confessed this horrible deed to his parents. And can you imagine being the mother and then all of a sudden you're swarmed by law enforcement officials that are not just showing up armed with a warrant, but they're showing up with cadaver dogs. They're showing up with ground penetrating radar in order to go over your property. And they're asking you very specific questions about any kind of burials that are on that property. You know, what has occurred out there over the years? And Betty, the mother, had revealed that they had had several family pets, including horses that had died and were buried in locations And in this particular case, Joel actually had knowledge of where these burials had taken place. Unfortunately, you know, the 2014 search of this location really turned up nothing, Dave. If you've got a vast area where you have a large area where you might have burials, either you have cadaver dogs who were out there that did not hit on a scent in particular at that moment in time, because maybe it was too far in the distant past, or maybe something, some element to this that had created a barrier between the dog's ability to hit on a specific area, or they weren't maybe searching as thorough as they should. You think about this ground-penetrating radar that a lot of people talk about, which is essentially feeding an image back up to you as you go over it. And it's a very tedious job in order to use one of these things. Just imagine something that looks like a gigantic lawnmower with a big base on it. And you have to go very, very slowly 
It's not like it's going to go ding, ding, ding. You've hit a body. You have to go over it piece by piece and then go back and analyze the imagery. If not, you might as well just go out with a shovel and just dig randomly. You have to have specific evidence and you have to have somebody that can actually interpret what they're seeing because I've looked at these the readouts that come from the, certainly in earlier generations of ground penetrating, I couldn't make heads or tails out of it, Dave. It's, it's like it might as well be ancient Greek when you're looking at this. But for the trained eye, you can pick up on the little subtleties that are hiding just beneath the surface. Now, to back up a little bit here, we mentioned uh, Joel Hollendorfer telling his feeling like he caused his father's heart attack. It was a very sudden and big heart attack. And ultimately, what we're going to get to here is that Joel Hollendorfer could not keep to himself what he did. He took it upon himself to unburden himself to his mother and father, To uh, at which this is a whole new plane. We need to bring in Nancy Grace to deal with what's next, because I wonder about the responsibility when somebody finds out information that is really important and they don't share it with law enforcement, because what we are led to believe here is that Joel Hollendorfer told his mother and father that he killed a woman, a young woman, that he killed her. Then we're also led to believe by his ex-wife, Christina, that the day after his father's funeral, Joel calls her and says, go for a ride with me in my new truck. And during that ride, he tells his ex-wife, Christina, they had an on-again, off-again relationship that went on for years, but... He tells her he feels like he's responsible for his father's death. And then he tells her what he did to Kara Nichols. And Joe, I just want to know, Joe, what do you do with that information? It's so many years later, they've already searched the property. Who all's responsible? To, are, am I supposed to? I would think you would tell somebody, right? Yeah, you would think so. And uh, for years, they were trying to suss all of this out. They had a lot of information that they were trying to make heads or tails of. And the ex-wife, whose first name is Christina, she winds up being found in Virginia all the way in 2022. Now, she's kept this information locked away for all of these years. And we've got this family that is really wanting to know what happened to their daughter, their sister, their friend, Karen Nichols. And it's buttoned up. What the ex-wife, Christina, revealed is on that ride in his new truck, he confesses to her that he had gone and picked Kara up. In her vehicle, they were seated, and he had an awareness that Kara had a heroin addiction problem. And one thing led to another inside of that vehicle, and he admitted to choking the life out of her. He throttled her there in the car. And brought about her death. And he admitted at that point in time that after he had done that, he needed to do something with her remains. And so he takes her remains to his parents' property and buries them on the property. And so she's kept this tucked away that she has knowledge of this. And you begin to think about this from the perspective of, well, yeah, he may have admitted it to you back then and you thought that he was unburdening himself. But then you think about, well, if he's capable of throttling a young girl and she's this tiny little thing that he's picked up, he found her actually in an ad that she was new in town. She's young. She's actually posted a picture of herself in lingerie. Are, are there any others? And so does the burden, I think, then 
fall onto the shoulders of those that have this knowledge. Has he perpetrated anything else like this? So th- that would be something that a prosecutor would have to answer. But I do know this. He stated that he had disposed of her body. He placed her body into a black bag and covered the body with lime, which is seems counterintuitive uh, because the purpose of placing lime on a body is to speed the decompositional process. And here's the thing. When they went to talk to the mother again at the conclusion of this, uh, the mother said, well, my favorite horse, we buried her in this particular location. You might want to try there. And they went back and took aerial photographs of the location this time in 2022 and kind of mapped out the area very specifically so the mother could direct them to that location, looking at the map, specifically identifying it. And part of this is crime scene documentation. If and when a a case goes to trial, you want to be able to go back from a macro sense, give the jury and the people of the court an idea as to the position of evidence. And what better way than if you're doing an uh, like an aerial shot of a scene where you can point out, okay, well, here's the house, here's the barn, here are the fences, this is the corral, and this is where we bury all of the animals. And then that's from a macro, of a broad sense. And then you begin to kind of close. We do crime scene photography the same way. We take from a great distance, then mid-range. And then, of course, we do micro photography where we're kind of tightening up our field of view. And this way, this is documented all the way along. And so they took that data and actually excavated that area. And they actually found Kara's remains there, Dave. Let me go back to the bag with the body and lime. I thought lime was used as a way to keep the odor decomposition down, but it actually is to speed up the process. Does it do that? Yeah, it actually does both. It will knock down, allegedly knock down the smell to a certain degree. You can never completely diminish the smell, but also it speeds the process of decomposition, particularly if the soil, the elements in the soil are not conducive to this kind of aerobic environment that you need in order to speed along the process of decomposition. It enables the otherwise incompatible area that the body, because you don't know. I mean, killers are not going out and doing chemical studies of soil where they're burying bodies. Lime has long been known to speed up the process. And so what other reason, unless you're in farming or gardening, are you going to purchase lime? I will tell you, when I had to buy some lime for stuff in the yard, I actually thought, oh my goodness, they're going to watch me where I go. I mean, all I'm thinking is Goodfellas, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of people get, they're informed by what they see in the movies and that sort of thing. That would have been just, no pun intended, an ingredient to this mix that he's doing. But what about, okay, when you've got the body now, we know that the body is buried in a bag, but it's placed in the same grave three feet down where Betty's favorite horse was buried. Do we not have a commingling of body parts? We're talking years here. Listen to you, commingling. I hear you, man. Very good. Yeah, actually, we've talked about commingling. And here's the thing. And you you mentioned this is more like a, it's not a surface deposition. We've talked about that on body bags where you just kind of have the body laying on top of the ground. There's been an effort made to dig down at least three three feet 
That's what the crime scene revealed at the time. Here's the reality of this. You would probably not have commingling at this point in time. Because I don't know if you've ever been on a farm when a large animal is buried. It's an undertaking. My grandpa raised horses. And so one of the things that would happen would be you would bring in like a backhoe, all right, to dig a grave in order to place the animal in. And it has to be, it's not like digging a human grave. It has to be sufficient to the task. The space has to be. So once you get that element down into the ground that you're trying to bury, you're going to go back and backfill that area. Well, it's certainly going to be deeper than just merely three feet deep. You're going to have to go deep to get the entire corpse of a horse down that low. So let's just say that they go down seven or eight feet with a backhoe. And with a horse, unlike a human, you have to, human graves are relatively narrow compared to what you have to do with a large animal. So it's going to be broad and deep. So you're trenching out this area, digging it down, and then they're going to go back and they're going to backfill it, probably pack the soil on top of it, maybe put other items on top of it, and then go back and continue to kind of layer this dirt on top. Now, after a period of time, this will begin to settle. That's why when people see graves, they commonly in the media, they're portrayed as like these kind of mounded areas in the earth. That gives you an indication if you're watching a movie, uh, there's a grave there. Graves many times actually appear as depressed areas. You can go to graveyards, old graveyards, where when you're walking through the graveyard, you'll see that there are depressions in the ground. More than likely in an old graveyard or cemetery, you will see these kind of depressed areas. Well, that's a collapsing grave that's there that you're walking adjacent to because over a period of time, soil has begun to settle. At this level of stratification and over this period of time, particularly considering that it was kind of a superficial dig on his part, three feet down, keep in mind, and the remains are contained in a bag. That's one of the reasons I don't understand why you would use lime because you've already created a barrier in order to prevent the lime from working. But you're not going to find this kind of commingling of the remains where the remains are falling apart, they're going down, and you have this thing that's called turbation in the soil. And people, you don't really realize it's going on, but the earth is always moving, okay? And it's kind of a slow move, a slow roll. The earth actually kind of stirs itself up. And over a long period of time, you'll see that commingling begin to take place. There hasn't been sufficient amount of time. So considering that he contained the body, he put it at a different strata, contained it or cocooned it in this plastic bag, is going to protect the remains. The bags would not have been I would think intact, even though their plastic tends to be in the modern age a bit more biodegradable than it used to be. So it would be in tatters more than likely. We are talking about 10 years in the ground. Yeah. And so over that period of time, there is a resiliency to plastic and people will go on and on about that. But it does, particularly these kind of thin plastic bags like this, they will begin to kind of shred over a period of time. Remember, plastic bags that you put garbage in are meant to go to a landfill. And so they have to have some level of biodegradability to them. It's not like you're taking some kind of heavy industrial plastic, like, uh, I don't know, we used to call it visqueen, like plastic sheeting that you would use on a build site, or even a plastic body bag, for instance, that is going to endure for years and years. This kind of plastic is going to be not as robust, say, for instance. And so you would have the remains contained in a specific area. And there they found Kara, though. She was 
her remains were literally lying atop the buried remains of Betty's horse that she loved. And the son knew where that location was, and he chose that area to deposit this young woman's body, Dave. Joe, could you, at this late date, 10 years in the ground, could you forensically verify his story claiming that he strangled her in the car? No, I think that it would be markedly difficult because with strangulation, if that's what he's saying, and it is what he is saying, and it is what he said, in order to appreciate strangulation, you're going to need soft tissue. And bone trauma is not always going to be there. People think about, they associate strangulation with breaking someone's neck. And those are two different things completely. Just because someone is strangled doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have neck trauma. And I know I can hear it right now. There are people saying, well, what about the hyoid? I was saying that in my head, Joe. I really was. And I'm like, I know he's going to get to it. But yeah, I, what about we've all heard about it. Well, yeah, you have. But just because, you know, the hyoid is so high up in the neck, there is no proof that every single time someone is strangled that the hyoid is going to be fractured. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, I think that it would happen more infrequently. And it all depends on where the hands are positioned. So if an individual strangles someone, say at the level of the male's Adam's apple, if people will kind of appreciate that, you're not really approximating the hyoid to get up to that bony structure that's way up. You know, it anchors the tongue. So that's how high you get it. That's why many times when they used to do judicial hangings, for instance, not only would they snap the neck, and which is a completely different, interesting kind of history about hangings, they're looking to break the neck in that particular case. But many times because the noose was positioned so high, you would have a fractured hyoid and those could be actually appreciated at autopsy. But just because somebody puts their hands on somebody's neck and chokes the life out of them doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see a fractured bone in the neck. So ultimately, 10 years after the fact, give or take, the body of Karen Nichols was found three feet deep with a horse body, and I'm assuming the horse was just buried in the dirt. I don't know. We know they did find Kara in the black bag, but it was tattered because they saw her hand as they the first thing they saw with the black bag on the property owned by his parents. But it was many years after at least three people had heard the story that uh, Joel Hollendorfer told them that he strangled this girl to death and buried her body on his parents' farm. Yeah, and Here's the thing. Joel Hollendorfer was actually tried and convicted in the homicide of Kara. But here's the thing. So much time had elapsed, Dave, that initially they had charged him with second degree murder. That charge was reduced to manslaughter and tampering with evidence. And the terrifying thing about this is that he was given 24 years, which he's currently serving in the penitentiary in Colorado, but he still has a shot. He's 47 years old, Dave, when he went inside. He still got a shot to get out and still have some life to live after that period of time. But Karen Nichols, she's gone. But finally, her family can properly grieve her. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Body Bags. 